Good morning, church. Uh, today's, re today's reading is uh, Colossians uh, 1, 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Good morning. That is a great intro video to our brand new teaching series. Are you guys excited about the new year? Outstanding. Are you excited about the new teaching series this morning? Absolutely. I love to study God's Word. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 8. Colossians, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And uh, grab your sermon notes out. You'll see a couple quotes there. We're going to start off with uh, what this book is all about. And I think that Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us what the book is all about. Colossians. And you can see that on your notes. So you have everything when you have Christ. That's Colossians 2.10. That's from the Living Bible. It's a paraphrase. But from the New American Standard Bible, it says, Colossians 2.10, in him you have been made complete in him. So this book is about finding our completeness, our contentment, our wholeness in Jesus Christ. And um, a couple quotes from one from C.S. Lewis, the other one from A.W. Tozer. C.S. Lewis says this, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. That, that quote was terribly convicting to me a few years ago. As I really started thinking out the implication of that, I realized, ah, I'm not sure that I'm as content as I should be in Jesus. I, I, it's almost kind of like Jesus plus, if I had just had this or accomplished that or achieved this, and what C.S. Lewis is saying is that all the fame, fortune, success, possessions, pleasures in this world can't add anything to what we have, what we already have in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that any of us really totally live in that reality, especially living in America. We're bombarded with all the, the information and all the ads and all the stuff there. But that's what he says. He who has God and everything else has no more. No more than he who has God only. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. The man who has God has his treasure has, um, let me say that again. The man who has God as his treasure has all things in one. Now, anytime you uh, study a book of the Bible, you always want to start off with who's the author, who's the audience, what's his agenda? That kind of lays a foundation for your interpretation of that book. So let's take a look at that. First of all, the author Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. What was Paul's name before he became a Christian? Anybody? Saul. Let me take you to Acts chapter 8. This is before Christ, pre-Christ. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church, and Saul was ravaging the church, 
and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's Saul before he became Paul. How did he become Paul? Acts chapter (laughs) 9. I love it. I love the story of Saul becoming Paul. Acts chapter 9. Now as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. So he's on the road to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You mess with Jesus' family, you're messing with Jesus, okay? I mean, that's 100% right. That's what, what Jesus wants Saul, before he becomes Paul, to know. You're messing with me, dude. You're trying to take my family down. You're trying to take my church down. Gates of hell won't prevail. I'm coming after you. And, and sure enough... I mean, Paul was a persecutor of Christians who becomes a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, it's absolutely amazing. And and in fact, he's called an apostle, capital A, apostle. That means having seen and personally sent by the resurrected Christ Jesus. Now, not to be confused with the small A apostle, which is found among the gifts of the Spirit. I won't talk about that one, but, but he had encountered the resurrected Christ and was sent personally by Christ. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. That's a big chunk. So his life was certainly uh, transformed by an encounter with Jesus Christ and understanding the gospel. Here's, here's the big idea. Here's kind of the point as it relates to the author of this book. If the gospel can transform Paul's life, then it can transform anyone's life, anyone's life. Have you ever had people in your life where you looked at them and you go, oh my goodness, they seem to be hopeless. <laughs> I mean, I've got a few. I've looked at them and go, oh my goodness, there's no way. There's no way that they'd ever become a Christian. And then they would shock me by becoming a Christian, okay? And I'd go, oh gee, I, I had it all wrong. You see, if you ever think or feel that any situation or person is hopeless, then you don't know the power of the gospel. Oh my goodness. You don't know the power of the gospel. If you're ever hopeless or feel like a situation or person is hopeless, you don't know the power of the gospel. You don't know the power of the gospel. We're going to talk about the power of the gospel here. So who's the audience? That's Paul. Paul is the author. The audience, look at verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is one of Paul's prison letters, prison epistles from Rome to people he had never met, but they knew him and respected his leadership. In fact, in our verse, in our text, verse 8, it actually says that they loved him. So he had influence on their life. Paul had worked with a man named Epaphras. He's also in our text. That was his name that we read. Epaphras, who was from Colossae. Paul had sent Epaphras back to Colossae to preach the gospel and over time informed Paul of what was going on in Colossae. The Colossians had fallen prey to adding extra rules and false teaching to their faith. So Paul wrote them a letter to say basically this. I can summarize the letter here. If you've got Jesus the Messiah, you've got everything. In fact, 
Colossians 2, verses 3 through 4, he says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So in this series, we're going to talk about some of those plausible arguments that are not only found in the church, but also in our culture that go against the, the gospel of our Savior Jesus. Now, by the way, Epaphras was later arrested and imprisoned in Rome for proclaiming the gospel. So we got the author, Paul, the audience, the church in Colossae, and now we have the agenda. You'll see there on your notes, the whole book is about the preeminence of Christ Jesus. I define that word for you, so preeminence, the fact of surpassing all others. Superiority, sufficiency, and satisfaction. So this book is about really helping us to see that Jesus is superior, sufficient, and satisfying more than anything else on this planet or in the universe. And that's what the whole book is about. Colossians 2.10, in Christ you have been made complete. Colossians 3.11, Christ is all in all, and it's in the context there, regardless of race, class, gender, or ethnicity. Doesn't matter. Now, I gave you a little bit of an outline of the whole book here, and you can see that on your notes. Doctrine, chapter one begins with doctrine, Christ's preeminence declared. And then you've got the second part, danger, it's a warning, Christ's preeminence defended. That's chapter two. And then chapters three and four, he wraps it up with duty, Christ's preeminence displayed. This is what I love about the Apostle Paul when he writes. This book is very similar to the book of Ephesians, where Paul always begins with the wealth that we have in Christ Jesus before he he takes you to the place where we begin to walk it out. You can't walk out the Christian life apart from the wealth that you have in Jesus. So if you start with the walk before the wealth, you're not going to be able to pull it off. You're not going to be able to do it. In fact, you're going to become very religious and you're gonna miss Christianity completely. You can almost put these three, uh, these three major ideas of this book, in, you could call it wealth, warning, and walk. So doctrine, duty, uh, doctrine, danger, duty, however you wanna say it, but that's, that's the flow of the book. Now, the next point on your notes, I, I, I want you to really understand this. There's nothing, nothing brings life change like the gospel. Okay, okay, I know, I know you've heard that before, but I, I want you to hear it again, maybe, as if it's the very first time you've ever heard that. I want you to hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time. Nothing brings life change like the gospel. This is what lit me up years ago. This is what started Desert Breeze because I'm convinced of that. I've seen that in thousands and thousands of people's lives. This is what keeps me going. This is why I do what I do. This is why I look forward to coming together week in and week out and ministering to the people that we minister here. Nothing brings life change like the gospel. Here's the problem is that after a while, we've heard that over and over again. We become cavalier and casual about that. I'm telling you, that statement should light you up. I mean, you should be so lit up with the reality of that that you're wanting to spread the gospel to anybody and everybody you come in contact with. If not, you're not living in reality of the the gospel message. Nothing brings life change like the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And, uh, and so let, let me just make this broad brush kind of statement. I think it's very true. Do you agree that this world is one big mess? Yeah. 
Yeah, unless you're living under a rock somewhere or you're not paying attention to the news, you're not hanging out with people for very long, or I mean, there could be any number of reasons why you probably maybe might be out of touch, maybe you're medicating yourself. I'm telling you, this world is one big mess full of sin and suffering. There's no doubt about it, it's all around us. And it seems to be continuing to get worse and worse. So what is the solution? Have you ever kind of scrolled through the solutions that all the people, people are, everybody's pursuing some sort of solution. We all know we have a mess, so what is the solution to the mess? Everybody on this planet is seeking some sort of solution for the mess. We can scroll through the options as, as we have in the past. Will education save the day? How about politics? Well, it seems like politics is just getting worse, huh? Would you guys agree with that? It's getting crazy. How about democracy? We're kind of losing our democracy here in America, in America today. It's getting crazier. It's getting crazier. How about economy? We need to have a good economy. How about counseling, self-help, social justice? You could add to that list. Those... All of these are very important issues in our culture, but they're all secondary and third and fourth compared to the gospel. Listen to me, nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, turn hatred into love, give you meaning, hope, and happiness like the gospel, like the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. And this is the basis of Desert Breeze. This is what we're all about. Whatever the capacity there is for human sin and suffering in the world, the church has a greater capacity through the gospel for healing, hope, and wholeness. We have the answers that the world is searching for in the gospel. Do you understand that? I mean, we should be proclaiming it. We should be looking for opportunities to share it with our family and friends. And so, three questions, three questions. What is the gospel? How does the gospel change us? What difference will it make? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be able to answer all three of those. You gotta be able to sit down with someone, say, hey, here's what the gospel is, this is how it transforms you, and oh my goodness, this is the difference it will make. This is the difference it's made in my life. Can you do that? You need to be able to do that. I'm gonna teach you how to do that right now. The very first part of this uh, book of Colossians helps us with that. So let's take that first question. What is the gospel? Uh, Verse 2, he says, grace and peace from God our Father. He's giving us a little bit of a hint of the gospel. When you have the favor of God, the grace of God, believe me, you're going to have peace. If you don't have peace, you don't understand that God is for you, not against you. That's grace. And so grace and peace, verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, and he says then the gospel. So he's kind of defining the gospel for us. It's the word of truth. And then in verse 6, he says the grace of God in truth. So there's two parts to the gospel. And listen, you've got to have both parts or you don't have the gospel. Got to have both of these. The first part is I'm more sinful than I ever want to think, or more sinful than I ever dared to think. That's, that's the truth part, the truth part. And I'm, I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. That's the first part of the gospel. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love how the gospel levels the playing field. It puts us all in the same category. All of us have sin, and we fall short of the glory of God. Why would it put it quite like that? Because you were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. And so what does that mean? We fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see how desirable and satisfying Christ is. 
And so what we do is we do Romans 1.25. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. By the way, we're all guilty of that. And even as Christians, we still struggle with that. That's the struggle in all of our hearts. And if you don't understand that, you don't believe that, you're out of touch with the reality of your own heart. We all struggle there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the creator. We make much of our jobs or our marriages or our kids or anything, anything else more than Christ and the gospel. Now this statement here, this truth should humble you. So anytime you come across a proud Christian, they're not living in the reality of this truth. An arrogant Christian, it's inconsistent with this truth. But don't, don't just stop there. That's not the whole gospel. That's just the first part. Here's the second part. I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream or imagine. Jesus loved me so much he wanted to die for me. There's the grace. There's the grace. Listen to me. No one, no one loves you like Jesus. No one. There's no spousal love or parent love or child child love or fame and fortune love or puppy love or kitty love. I got to add kitties in there because some of you like kitties. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to say any more than that. No, hey, all that love is a dim glimpse of the love that we have in Christ. That's the point. That love, the love of Christ should ravish your heart. Nothing like his love. In fact, it tells us in uh, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When I, see, when I hear that, I go, gift, it's a gift. You can't earn it, you can't achieve it, but you can embrace it and you can receive it by faith in Christ. That is amazing, that's crazy, yes. It almost seems like it's, it just, it's a gift, yeah, Absolutely. You can enter into it. You should be experiencing the blessing of that even today and be so excited about it you want to share it with everybody. That would, that would be just normal Christianity. It says in Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the, the, the first truth should humble you. This truth should give you courage and confidence. So pride or fear, a proud or fearful Christian is an oxymoron. See, both of these truths, they should give you a humility and then a confidence, a courage to be able to face anything. You got fear in your life? It's because you're not living in the reality of this truth. Man, I'm telling you, no one loves you like Christ. And when you understand his love, his perfect love will chase away the fear. But too often, we're not living in the reality of that. That's a fact. And so, uh, I mean, this should eliminate all attitude of superiority. How could we ever be superior or feel superior to anybody? We were so simple, Jesus had to die for us. How could we ever feel inferior to anybody? He loved us so much he wanted to die for us. I mean, it almost creates within us what I would call, I think C.S. Lewis called it a blessed self-forgetfulness. I mean, it just totally eliminates attitude of superiority or inferiority. You're just captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ. Now, I, I gave you the gospel, kind of a gospel message in a nutshell here, and you're gonna make, have to make a correction on your notes. I missed one word on the notes. It says, the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us. Put the us in there. Can't forget us. 
to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. And that's really important to have both parts of that. You can see both parts in, in, in that message there. First Timothy 2, 5 through 6 basically says, it's very clear, there's only one mediator between God and, and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. There's no other way that you can uh, be in a right relationship with God, experience eternal life, go to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. That's a fact. It's not because I said it. It's because of what Jesus says. It's what the Bible teaches. And uh, that's how God has revealed himself to us, one of the many ways that he's revealed himself to us. In John 3, 16, of course, you know that. God loved us so much, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the fact. Here's the truth. Here's what you need to continue to always remember. All human problems are ultimately symptoms. All human problems are ultimately symptoms, and our rebellion and separation from God is the cause. And this is a problem that only God can fix. I mean, when you look around, when you wake up and you hear of another murder, another problem over here, another issue there, all the chaos, all the problems should drive you back to the reality that this is a problem that only Christ can fix. Don't get desperate. Just let it stir your heart up more for Jesus and get the word out. that we have the answer in Jesus Christ and through the gospel. I mean, so, yeah, it's getting bad. It's getting horrible. Don't, don't become bitter and angry and throw yourself into a pity party and have a sense of hopelessness. You don't need to go there. We have hope in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. When times get bad, guess who should be stepping up? It should be us as believers because we have the answer. We have the answer to the, to the world's problems and issues. That's why I love doing what I do. Oh, my goodness. I just absolutely, I'm just, I'm sky high this morning. This is the third time I preached this, man. And so, look out. I'm locked and loaded. I mean, I I just love Jesus. I love studying his word. I love the gospel. Oh, my goodness. And so, so as as we kind of work this out in our life, because God is holy, righteous, and just, he passed the required sentence of death on our sin. We deserve to be eternally separated from him. But because he is loving, merciful, and gracious, he took that punishment upon himself on the cross so that we could be rescued, redeemed, and reconciled once and for all back to him. Now, in being able to communicate these, uh, these two parts of the gospel, here's something you need to be aware of. You need to be able to articulate this too. That the gospel has two equal and opposite enemies that corrupt the message, emptying it of its life-changing power. And oftentimes I'll hear people say that, hey, yeah, I'm a Christian, but man, I haven't experienced much life change, or, or they're not any different from the first day when they committed their life to Christ. It's probably because of one of these two equal and opposite enemies that have corrupted the message, emptying it of its life-changing power. And you need to know this. You need to be able to communicate it. You need to watch your own life that you don't fall prey to that. And you need to also be careful about the church you're part of, that it's not doing the same. And the first enemy is legalism or moralism or religion. This would be the elder brother and the prodigal son's story. Both of the sons were lost. We just went through that in Luke chapter 15. And so 
this emphasizes that God is holy, righteous, and just, not always, but sometimes to the exclusion that he is loving, merciful, and gracious. There's an imbalance. The sentiment is, you're a terrible sinner, so try harder. If, if you ever go to a church like that, good luck, okay? That's not a good church to go to where they, where they beat you with the law. And I've come across some of these people that are religious. And when I would talk about God's loving, merciful, and gracious, they'd say, yeah, but God's holy. He's just. I got that, dude. I got it. I don't think you got it that he's merciful and loving and gracious because you dog me all the time about his holiness. It's like, I, I got that. I, I'm trying to balance that out. But dude, you're like the elder brother in the prodigal son's story. Seriously, elder brothers are not fun people to hang out with. It's just like, good night. You're a terrible sinner, so try harder. Well, thank you very much for all that gracious help. I mean, you live under the burden of your overwhelming sin debt. And, and they typically will motivate you by fear and or pride to do better. Fear? God's going to get you. You better look out. Or pride? You don't want to be like that other church over there. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even preach the gospel over there. Well, that's kind of an elitist, and that sounds like a Pharisee. That doesn't sound healthy. Yeah, fear and pride is extrinsic motivation. It's a morally restrained will. It's not a supernaturally transformed heart. You shouldn't be motivated out of fear and pride. You should be motivated out of a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. Otherwise, it's not the gospel. You know, it's not have to. It's like want to. Yeah, I want my heart to be transformed. Oh, my goodness. And so, so you live under the burden of this overwhelming debt, motivated by fear or pride to do better. Pharisees usually raise little Pharisees or atheists. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that I've seen people come out of these churches rejecting the gospel, and they don't even really know the gospel. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we work through. So the first one is legalism. The next one is liberalism, antinomianism, or irreligion. This is the younger brother in the prodigal son story before he repented. And it emphasizes God's love, mercy, and grace to the exclusion that he is holy, righteous, and just. There's major ministries in America today that that's all they do. And people are duped by it. God loves and accepts everyone, therefore, yeah, it doesn't really matter how you live. Yeah, he just loves everybody. We don't have to obey him. They wouldn't say that outright, but that's kind of what they're implying. This is called cheap grace. These are people who don't understand their sin debt and the costliness of God's grace. Because there's not much preaching about sin or God's righteousness or his justice or his holiness. They have their born-again certificate, but there's no life change. I've seen people defect from those churches too, saying, hey, it didn't work. Of course it didn't work. You don't have the whole gospel. You don't understand the gospel. Now, conservative evangelical fundamentalists and even Bible churches can tend to lean toward legalism. I, and I said even Bible churches. I heard a person say not too long ago, said, oh, this is really a good Bible church. 
It's like, so I'm not really sure what you mean by that, okay? Like they, they teach the Bible, Mormons teach the Bible, and Jehovah's Witnesses teach the Bible. You could teach the Bible in a very legalistic way or a very liberal way. So how are they teach in the Bible? Okay, it's gotta be more than, it, it's a Bible church. And, and by the way, uh, we're all guilty of this in some degree or another, and every church is guilty of this to one degree or another. I'm conscientious of it, and, and for 30 years have tried my best to try to maintain a balance, and it's hard to do that. We tend to swing to extremes. And so conservative, evangelical, fundamentalists, and even Bible churches can tend to lean toward legalism. Liberal mainline and attractional and seeker churches tend to lean toward liberalism. If you think one of these errors is much more dangerous than the other, you are probably partially participating in the one you fear less. You're like saying, oh, that's the problem. Uh, they're both a problem, really. You can go to one extreme or the other. Don't swing out. And, I, and this is what I see. I see people leave legalistic churches only to go into liberal churches, and people leave liberal churches only to go into swing out into uh, legalistic churches. Neither one of that, that is good. So here's the test. So what would be the test that I really understand? I have a balanced understanding of the gospel as it relates to my own life. That I really understand that it's indispensable. He had to die for me. There's no other way that I could connect with God and go to heaven and experience all that he has for me. It's indispensable and it's unbelievably costly. I mean, the son of God, the God of the galaxies came to this earth and bled and died for me. How do I know that that has an impact on my life? Humble, confidence and indescribable and indestructible joy. As Paul's writing to second generation Christians, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you're filled with an indescribable and indestructible joy. I mean, what's the best news you've ever heard in your life? I started thinking about that and, and, and we could go through a whole list you know, maybe it was being accepted by that college, college degree, career, opportunity, marriage, kids, an inheritance you receive, got the word that cancer was gone, whatever it might be. That's a dim glimpse. All, all of that is a dim glimpse. It's all a dim glimpse. The best message you've ever heard is a dim glimpse to the message of the gospel. If the gospel message isn't the most amazing message you've ever heard, you haven't heard it. You haven't heard it. I pray that you will hear it before the end of this message. Sometimes, and I've seen this happen at our church, it takes a seeker about six months coming to Desert Breeze, hearing the gospel over and over again before all of a sudden the coins drop. Bam! And they go, oh my goodness. I've even seen believers do that. They said, I was born again, but now I'm really born again. It's like, oh my goodness. I thought I saw the gospel, but now I really see it. This is the best news ever. I go, yeah. Sure it is. There's nothing better. There's nothing absolutely better. So, how does the gospel change us? How does it change us? I, I took the different words that he uses there in our text and kind of unpack them, and it kind of it gives us kind of a progression of what needs to take place in our hearts if the gospel is really going to change us. Besides having this balanced view, 
of having these two parts of the gospel. How does the gospel change? It must be proclaimed. That's, that's the first one. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on, on your behalf. So they learned it from Epaphras. Now, this is what's important to understand in proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is a message about how we have been rescued from peril. That's the message. The very word gospel, it's used in verse 5 of our text, has, its, has as its background a news report about some life-altering event that has already happened. So, so as we work through this series, as you've heard me say many times before, you need to hear this almost redundantly. The gospel is not good advice about what you must do to be right with God. The gospel is good news about what Christ has done to make us right with him. I hear a lot of preaching today in Christendom and a lot of churches, and all they're doing is giving you good advice. That's not the gospel. How to have a better marriage, how to you know, have, balance your checkbook, how to do all these things. The Bible certainly addresses those issues, but that's not the gospel. They're given some good advice, but the gospel is good news. It's not something you do. It's been done for you. And that's, it's important, so that's why you need to understand sermons, weekend services, uh, that's why declarative preaching is necessary. When you talk to people about the gospel, you're declaring the good news to them. You know, when you've had some good news and you want to share it with others, you, you declare, you go, oh, I can't wait to tell you this. You're not going to believe this. What do you do? You're not giving them good advice. You're giving them good news. This is what's happened. That's what we can do. And so on weekend services, it's not a lecture. The lecture will give you good information and sermons will give you information, nor is it motivational talk. Motivational talks will give you action steps. Certainly sermons will give you action steps. It's not a lecture. It's not motivational talk. This is what it is. It's a sermon to help you on the spot to behold the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for you to the degree that it ruins you for anything else. That's a sermon, and that's what you desperately need week in and week out in your life. That's the gospel message, and that's what it does to your heart. It transforms you on the spot. You begin to behold the beauty and the glory of Christ, and in doing that, it transforms you. You go, oh my goodness, that's what he's done for me. I forgot about that. Why would I live below my potential and privilege when I've got him? I've got you. So it's, that's, that's what we do. We try to do every weekend, week in and week out. So what is the good news? The good news is that through Christ, this is what's been done for you. You can take this to the bank. This is in your bank account. You are rich beyond the world's richest billionaire because of what you have in Christ. He's forgiven you of all your sins. He's once and for all reconciled you back to the Father. You have a relationship with the Father, with God. He's adopted you into his family. He calls you child. He's gonna protect and provide for you. He lavishes you with his love. He empowers you with his Holy Spirit. He guarantees a place in heaven for you. And you could add many more to that. That has to be proclaimed week in and week out. Do you hear that? 
That's been done for you. You can enter into it. You can experience it. But the problem is, is that we tend to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. So we don't live in the reality of that. That's why we need to be told that week in and week out. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you for telling me that. Have you ever heard this statement before? Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. You guys know what I'm saying? Okay, that's, that's, that's an okay. I kind of understand what they're saying, but it's impossible to preach the gospel without words. Because all they're going to think is that, man, he's really a nice person. And there's a lot of atheists out there that are really, really nice people. So they're not going to get the gospel just by you being nice, by you being kind. In fact, it tells us in Romans 10, 14 through 15, is that how will they believe if they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without preaching? And how are they going to have preaching unless someone sends them or someone goes to them and brings the gospel to them? Here's what I would suggest. Show them what a friend they have in you so that you can tell them what a friend they have in Jesus. Cultivate relationship with people, certainly, because you love people because of the gospel transformation in your heart. But then look for opportunities. And this is what we should be doing day in and day out, looking for opportunities with people in our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. God, how can I communicate the gospel to them? Give me opportunity. I'm telling you, in 2022, he will give you opportunity to convey and proclaim the gospel to them. Begin to look for those opportunities. I think we've kind of put this whole gospel thing on the back burner. And what God is asking us to do here at Desert Breeze in 2022 is like, let's bring it up front and center. This is what's most important. Let's see if we can reach more people with the gospel message. That's what he's calling us to. These are our marching orders as we head into the book of Colossians. And so proclaim, proclaim the gospel is the best news in the world. And then, you, then the next one is heard, the word heard. So you've got to proclaim it, but they, they have to. It says, you heard it, verse 6. Now, this is an interesting word. The Greek means to perceive or comprehend. If you aren't clear in your articulation of the gospel, people will think of the gospel as something that you do rather than what has been done for them. Case in point, my wife and I work out at Speed and Strength University, Drew Bohannon. He's sitting right over there. See, you can't hide from me, dude. Okay, right over there. And uh, great, great gym. Ever since he opened it up, we've been working out there. And we work out in a group kind of a group workout. I call it the convalescent workout group. Okay, that was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. And I'm only speaking for myself because others probably wouldn't say that. But I, I look pretty pitiful out there as I'm getting older, trying to work out. But it's really good for us. But I was prompted um, by the Holy Spirit about a month ago to ask one of the gals working out with us if she knew the gospel. Great gal. And she, she's been hanging out with us. She knows I'm a pastor and, and uh, knows a lot of different things. I know that Drew has witnessed to her, and I know, I know that she's listened to a message or two from here. That's probably why she hasn't showed up. But anyway, uh, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but, but I asked her, what is the gospel? She kind of stumbled around with that question. And then I said, okay, let me, let me make it easier for you. Is the gospel primarily about what you must do or is it primarily about what has been done for you? And she immediately went to do. Well, it's something I've got to do. And then I went on to kind of explain it. No, no, actually it's something that has been done for you. In fact, the more you begin to understand it, you, th you begin to think of it as this is too good to be true. 
It's so overwhelming. And I began to explain a little bit to her. And she was so delighted to hear that. She came over and hugged me after that. And it was just, we had a really good interchange. And I just pray to God that she's beginning to understand that more and more. And I know that Drew has been kind of speaking truth to her and, and reaching out to her in different ways. And so, but, but most people, most people, when you present the gospel to them, they'll think of, of it as something that they have to do rather than what has been done for them. So you have to be very clear in your articulation of that. And... Um, and here's what I've learned through the 30 years of ministry here, and, and I've been involved in ministry even before here, and I've watched this in families, in churches, and from one generation to the next. If one generation believes the gospel and the next generation assumes the gospel, oh yeah, everybody knows the gospel. If they're assuming the gospel, the third generation will deny the gospel. There are a lot of churches that assume the gospel. If you attend a church that has consumeristic values and a pragmatic methodology where the gospel is either missing, peripheral, occasional, or incidental, that's very common in American churches these days. They are assuming the gospel and therefore winning consumers and pragmatists rather than helping people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Healthy churches are gospel-centered. See, and I've heard people say this before. Oh, I tried the gospel. I tried, they don't say gospel. They actually say, I tried Christianity. I went to church. Didn't work for me. Hey, listen, the gospel and Christianity isn't like trying on a new pair of socks, kind of trying it on to see if it works. Ah, these socks don't feel good. Get rid of them. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. I'm telling you, you encounter Christ. If you understand the gospel, it will transform your life. It works. Whatever you were thinking, it didn't work. Maybe you were taught some pragmatism, self-help, how-to. Of course that's not going to work. In the long run, you're going to come up short. You need Jesus. You need Christ at the center of your life. And, and, and so oftentimes what we need to ask is, say, oh, I, I reject all this stuff. Matt and I talked to a guy this last week. Yeah, I'm not a Christian. And I just said, so you're willing, you're willing to bet your whole eternity on the fact that you just, he used to attend here, and I asked him if he was going to another church, he's not, no longer going, and he just says, there's no church out there that even basically meets his standard. He's a legalist, and he nitpicks everything, and he's just caught up, he doesn't understand the gospel. He doesn't understand the gospel. Most people that reject Christianity are not rejecting Christianity, they're rejecting either legalism or liberalism. And if you'd sit down and say, no, help me explain, help me understand this. What are you, what are you rejecting here? Well, I, I went to that church and I did all this. Well, what were you expecting? What, what do you, what is it? Do you understand what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? Our youth need to know that when they reject Christianity, when they walk away from Christianity, they're rejecting Christ who laid down his life for them to give them a life of faith and risk and adventure and satisfaction unlike they will find anywhere else. When you walk away from Christ, you're walking away from the best life you could ever live. It's not an easy life. It's not a painless or problem-free life, but I'm telling you, it's the life you were meant to live, a life that lives for the glory of Christ. And that's where you're gonna find your deepest satisfaction, regardless of what goes down in your life, regardless. I never get tired of hearing the gospel. It's a reminder that I am part of the greatest redemption story of such cosmic drama and beauty that has ever staggered the imagination of man. 
And so it's got to, you got to proclaim it, but man, you got to make sure, do they really understand? Do they hear it? Do they hear this? And then the next one is really understood, understood. It's verse 6, and understood. This is really a fascinating word. I looked up the Greek, the original word for this, and it's epigenosko, epigenosko. Gnosko means um, not just facts and data. Gnosko means an experience. And then it puts this word epi, so, it, so it's more than just experiencing God in your life. It means to really know him, really experience him. And, and you understood it. So, it was, so you had it proclaimed. You heard the gospel, and you, and you really begin to experience him. So being able to accurately articulate the gospel is one thing. Having its truth captivate your soul is quite another, and I know that it hasn't captivated my soul at times in my life, because for instance, I become anxious when I forget, when I forget his loving, wise control of my life. That's when I become anxious. I'm out of touch with that aspect of the gospel. I become envious when I forget about the incredible wealth I have in Christ. I become proud when I forget the Christ, what Christ did to save me on the cross. I become unforgiving and bitter when I forget Christ's forgiveness of me. Now listen to what Martin Luther says. Martin Luther says, the gospel is for us, and I quote, the principal article of all Christian doctrine, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know its article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's what I try to do every weekend. You're welcome. I need that. I'm beating it into my own head. We desperately need that. Proclaimed, heard, perceived, and comprehended, understood, really experienced, and then learned. We've got to be able to walk it out into every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives. Verse 7, and you learned it. The word learn, the Greek literally means to increase one's knowledge. I mean, just because you committed your life to Christ, you've had an experience of Christ, doesn't mean you've arrived in other words, verse 6, it says, bearing fruit and increasing. That's what you want for your life, bearing fruit and increasing. We're going to talk more about that next week as it relates to how to thrive, how to bear fruit and increase. So the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith, but the A to Z of the Christian faith. A lot of people think, oh, we've already got the gospel. Let's move on to something deeper. You can't get any deeper than the gospel. We'll spend all eternity exploring the depth, the height, the width, the length of the gospel and never hit the end. It's absolutely spectacular. It's amazing. That's what we need to hear week in and week out. It's not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians and Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. That's, that's inaccurate. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and mature by learning to go deeper into the gospel by applying it to every aspect of our lives. And so the gospel is not a morally restrained will motivated out of fear and pride. It's a supernaturally transformed heart motivated out of a heart smitten by the love, the sacrificial love of Christ. Let me give you two quick examples, then I'll give you the last three fill in the blanks, and we'll be done. A couple examples of what that looks like. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul is dealing with the church in Corinth and he's wanting them to be generous and to help out the, the other Christians that are in famine. They're really struggling. So he doesn't work on their will, 
like a moralist would do. Hey, you're violating the Ten Commandments. You need to be more generous. He doesn't do that. He says, as, a, as an apostle, I could command you, but he doesn't do that. Nor does he become kind of a liberalist, you know, type person that works on their emotion. I know, you guys are going through hard time too, but man, they're, they're even worse off. You should see the turmoil that they're in, trying to, trying to get them to feel bad for them. He doesn't work on their emotion. No, he takes it right to the heart. He takes the gospel down deep into their heart. And this is what he says, very profound. He says, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Do you have any idea how wealthy you are? If you understood that, you would naturally want to give out of that overflow. See, that's taking the gospel much deeper, much deeper into your heart. Another quick example. Paul is writing about marriages in Ephesians chapter 5. And he's addressing men who, it was very common in those days for them to have a wife or kids and then a concubine or a couple girlfriends on the side for sex. Very common in those days. So he could come after him like a moralist and say, hey, that's a violation of the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. What are you guys doing? Get your act together. He could use fear and pride to try to motivate them. He doesn't do that. He knows better. He understands the gospel. Nor does he kind of work on their emotions like maybe someone from a liberal perspective would do. Oh, it's obvious that you're not having an internal need met and you're just acting out in some form or fashion. No, no, he basically says to men, and every time I read this, I kind of shudder a little bit because if I could be even half the man that he's describing there, oh my goodness, I would be happy. This is what he says. He says to men, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He cuts right to the chase and says, man, do you have any idea what Jesus has done for you. I'm telling you, you're gonna wanna lay down your life for your bride as Christ did for us. That's Ephesians 5.25. We need the gospel deep in our heart. And when that happens, this is what happens. We become people of faith, love, and hope. That's your last fill in the blanks. So what difference will the gospel make? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up in heaven. Faith in Christ, love for all the saints. So you're known as a person of faith, love, love for others, and hope, hope of heaven. You have an overwhelming sense of hope. Next weekend, How to Thrive, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Um, I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available leaders or elders. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you would like to commit your life to Christ, man, what a great morning to do that. You can do that, you can do that in your seat as we're praying. Acknowledge your sin. Believe Christ died on the cross for your sin. Confess him as Savior and Lord. Give your heart to him. And, uh, or you can come up and I'd love to pray with you. And if you have any questions, I'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, we are filled with joy and wonder over the gospel, the good news that you have accomplished our salvation for us through Christ in order to bring us into right relationship with you. And eventually, you will destroy all the results of sin in this world. We thank you for that. We look forward to that day. Teach us how to be better at proclaiming proclaiming it and helping others to truly perceive it and experiencing it and apply it to every aspect of their lives so that 
we can be people filled with faith, love, and hope for all for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. I love you guys.